Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nest Tsunami podcast. Today, we are offering three conversations from episode 45, our interview with Tel Aviv Medical Center Head of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, Oren Shibalet. Plus, from the fall, our conversation earlier this year with Ukraine Director of Health Alliances, Tatiana Deshko, and Patty Liver Alliance President Mike Patel. In this final conversation, Oren Shibalet discusses ways that the Hamas invasion and slaughter affected the collective perspective of Israeli. At the end, he also shares concerns about the long-term impact of the invasion and likely war to come on the practice of pathology at his center, which has, until now, been a leading clinical trial site, a position he hopes he can maintain. We all spend most of our lives in steatotic liver disease, an intellectually stimulating, pristine environment, but sometimes the outside world intrudes suddenly, glaring in a big way. This interview describes how that process has affected a major Israeli hospital and more broadly the people in Israel. It struck a chord with me, might do so with you, so just sit back, listen, learn, feel it, and when you're done, join the dialogue in our LinkedIn discussion. You say we are scared. What is the level of panic right now in the population? Or in Shibolet. Panic is, is not a good word, but, you know, there's, there's concern. There's concern. So in the past, maybe people would be very calm about the air raid sirens, which every now and then, even when we don't have such a huge clash with, with Gaza, sometimes we do get air raid sirens over the, over the years. And people were very calm about them. But now you see people are very, very obedient to all these instructions. So if I go home and there's an air raid siren, I see all the traffic stops, people evacuate their cars and they lie next to the cars on the road with their heads covered because they are aware that this one is serious. But I don't think, you know, people are, are panicky. There's a strong feeling of togetherness. There's a strong feeling of resilience. So for the time being, the population is standing strong. When you lose so many people, now the death toll stands on 1,400. Unfortunately, the population that was there was mostly young. So there's a lot of kids and there's a lot of teenagers and people in their young 20s. For instance, the party that was going on, it was called the Supernova Party, which is a huge event. There were 5,000 people there. And I would say the average age is 20 to 25. And you see pictures from that party of beautiful, beautiful, beautiful men and women dancing and being absolutely happy and being, you know, immersed in the music and everything. And the terrorists came over, surrounded them and killed hundreds. And when you see these beautiful faces in the pictures of the deceased, you know, it gives you strength because people are angry. People are feeling that the deaths must be revenged in a sense. So the, the feeling within the population is strong. So the deaths must be revenged is where the rest of the world can't quite figure out what to make of all this. I want to I want to get a couple of numbers in context to make sure I've got that right. So if in a country of 9 million, 10 million people, there were 5,000, 9 million, there were 5,000 at the party, and you roll that up by a factor of maybe 35, which would be the U.S. population against nine, you get to 330, 340, so that's 35 times. So that would be the equivalent roughly of having a festival that had, um, what, 180 thousand people at it, if you're going to compare it in terms of U.S. I mean, I right. don't know how many people were at Woodstock or how many people go to Burning Man in, in the desert there, but I mean, oh, there are boy, thousands of people. A lot less than that. I mean, look, the, the worst mass casualty in the U.S. was in Las Vegas, where one guy started shooting out of a high-rise at folks at a Jason right. Aldean concert. 
I think there are probably 30,000 people at the concert who are, who are exposed to space, if I remember the numbers correctly, and I could be wrong. So this is a huge swath of the population, number one. And number two is if you have 1,400 casualties to date, that would be the equivalent of 45,000, 50,000 people in the States against a population of 330 million, if, I, if I'm doing the math right in my head. So I'm not doing the math, but it's a huge... So, for instance, in the Yom Kippur War, which was... It's a, was a three-week three war. The total number of casualty was about 2,400. So that in a single day, we had 1,400 dead, which is about two-thirds of that death toll at the time. And during the Yom Kippur War, which was in 1973, most of the casualties, 99% of them were soldiers. And here, out of the 1,400, there are about 350 soldiers and security forces members, which means there are more than 1,000-something civilians, non-combatants, not armed, not nothing. Out of them, I think there are about 60 kids, patients, uh, people over the age of 80, women. I mean, the number of women, it's just, it's horrendous. It's horrendous. You know, we are tough people. I myself was a, a naval officer as part of our compulsory military service. And I listen to the stories on the news and I find myself weeping all the time. People have lost their kids. People have lost their babies. People have lost their, you know, it, it's horrendous. It's horrendous. So as a society, how do you look at the people of Palestine, not Hamas? Okay, so take Hamas out of this a minute. But how, do you look differently at the people of Palestine? Or do you say these are people, well, whatever they feel about Israel, these are also people who are, in a sense, captive to a bad government, a bad situation? How do you, how do you deal with that? So I place myself on the political map of Israel in a side that was always pro-peace. And I was always thought that our Palestinian counterparts want peace and that eventually there will be peace between our two countries. And I've acted on that belief. And over the last uh, nine months of the new government, I, we don't want this to be political, but I was uh, on the protest side, we will call it that. And I have to say a little bit that uh, my belief is, is shaken because this was totally unprovoked attack. And for me, it, it's hard to comprehend the amount of hatred that was portrayed in the murdering of kids and women and, and older people. However, I have compassion and empathy for people who are non-combatants on the other side. And there are a lot of people dead or dying in, the, in Gaza. And I feel for them because I think that not all are bad. And I think that young people that are being killed in, in Gaza, you know, they're innocent victims of this horrendous war. But... I don't think that Americans or Europeans or, or Canadians or whomever would be willing to leave. It's like, you know, you, you live right next to a snake pit and you're lying there and you're sitting there and you're saying to yourself, I'm not going to treat this snake pit. And, you know, if they bite me, then it's fine. It's OK. This attack was monstrous. And you're saying, what is the solution now? The solution is to say, okay, you know, it happened and do nothing or do something. And I guess the, the general feeling in Israel now is that it cannot continue like that. We cannot have somebody who's committed these atrocities against our innocent population go continue being on the same level. So I'm not saying that we need to punish, we need to avenge. This is not my feeling. But I think this situation needs to be solved somehow, because otherwise, if you're a, a 
president of, of a kibbutz next to the Gaza Strip border and you live 800 meters or a kilometer from the fence, you know, the fence was breached and hundreds of people were killed. So what do you say to yourself? How am I going to go back there with my kids if the threat has not been removed? So the threat has to be removed. I do not know how. I'm not a politician. I'm a doctor and I take care of people. But the threat has to be removed, whether through demilitarization in the end, through some other means, but it needs to be removed because no people will be willing to live there if the threat is still there. That makes perfect sense, obviously. Why would, why would anybody choose to live in a situation like that? I guess one other question that people outside of Israel might not understand and worth, worth shedding a light on, that the people who live there, was living there a, um, a seen as a political statement and seen as an anti, a right-wing statement, or was living there um, simply a choice people made for a variety of reasons? Absolutely not. Actually, as, as a matter of fact, these kibbutzim that are along the border were left-winged. So these towns, these rural agricultural settlements uh, actually were built in the early days of Israel, in the 50s and the late 40s. And they are all agricultural. It, it was a very patriotic thing to do at the time. And over the years, and after the Six Days War, etc., they became just peaceful rural populations, mostly based on agriculture. And generally speaking, kibbutzim in Israel are left-winged, and the towns around the Gaza Strips, the Rot, Netivot, were more right-winged in a sense. But it wasn't a political statement. It's not such a division, you know, uh, so and it wasn't a statement in any way. People just lived there because of quality of life, because they wanted to live on agriculture, because to, they wanted to live close to nature. And over the last years, you know, the last 20 years or so since the separation, it's become a very, very difficult place to live in because we have several rounds against Hamas and the bombing and shelling has been going on for the last 15, 20 years or so. And also there are little things so-called that we, you know, people in, in, in the West do not hear. And for instance, during summer, these are uh, our wheat areas. So what they do is they send from Gaza balloons with torches which fall inside the wheat fields and burn them. So if you're a, if you're a, you know, a wheat farmer in the southern part of Israel, you're dealing with constant danger to your your uh, livelihood and what you do. Okay. Is there anything else that you would like people who listen to this podcast, and that would be mostly medical professionals or commercial people, but from any given month, we'll have listeners in 35, 40 countries around the world. Is there anything else you would like to say to them or you'd like for them to understand about what it is to be in Israel this week, this month? So uh, let's say, I mean, we've had a horrendous week for us. I guess physicians, generally speaking, are willing to give from themselves for the benefit of mankind. And we're willing to treat whomever who is sick. And in liver diseases or other, this is what we want to do. And this has been a horrendous week for us because, first of all, some of our belief in human kindness has been shattered. And you see young people, kids, women, elderly people massacred for nothing just because they're being just because they were Jewish so that is a lot of people use the term my heart was broken my belief my beliefs were broken etc and it's true i think we will recover and I think we will be, we are strong and we'll be okay. A major issue for the Israeli medical system is how long this is going to be, because there are other things that we have to take into account. For instance, if this is going to take now three, four months 
of fighting in the north, in the south, etc. So all the medical problems that we raised are going to be strengthened and increased. So it's going to be much, much worse. And the second thing is that a lot of things around it, for instance, clinical trials. We, my unit, for instance, is a big clinical trial center, and we treat a lot of patients within the PBC, PSC, and other, and other diseases, IBD clinical trials. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, a company that wants to bring in a new medication for IBD or for NASH, why would it bring it to Israel if the situation here is, is unstable? So I'm thinking about repercussions that might go beyond the direct treating of patients. What would happen to funding that we would need? What would happen to donations that we need, etc., etc.? And, uh, of course, we're all concerned about a, a personal safety and the safety of the ones who we love. And, uh, you know, I have an elderly mom. She lives by herself not far from here, about 20 minutes from here. She has to run from her room to the protected shelter. And I'm saying to myself, you know, she doesn't have to be injured by a bomb. She can fall on the way and break her, th her, her hip, etc. And I'm thinking about my son who's currently in the reserve service. And, you know, you're worried. You're worried. And a lot of people are thinking, what will be the future? And this was an earthquake in terms of that. But we are strong. We will keep taking care of patients in Israel, liver and others. And I hope and believe that the Arab Israelis are our friends, they're Israelis, and they will keep on doing the right thing. They will keep on giving treatment to patients, etc. And I think they're part of the Israeli society. So this is very important for me to say, because I believe that, the, the and this is, has been always been my belief, that, you know, this is something that will make us strong in the end. So that's that. And now back to Roger. We hope you've benefited from this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the contents of the conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week discussing the liver risk score and some news about our ASLD coverage next month. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.